listening to First Church Charlotte. Amen. I love being a part of a friendly church, though. I've been to a few of the other kind, and it was no joy, so glad to be here today with all of you. So today I'm going to uh, read from Isaiah chapter number 61. If you would like to turn in the word of the Lord uh, with me there, we're going to read Isaiah chapter number 61 and verse number one. Let me say again to our guests and our friends, we're so honored to have you. Uh, We love having you. We love hosting you. Uh, you ever you ever go over somebody's house and they just always have people over and the neighbors can walk in and anytime they just love seeing everybody and that's just that kind of a house? Well, this is the kind of church we are, okay? So you're welcome to just walk over anytime. Just, if you need, if you need a pound of sugar, I mean, just show up and... Uh, I mean, just come in, use our refrigerator, um, you know, don't mess with our kids now. We draw the line there, but you know, <laughs> but just, just make it your house. We're glad you're in the neighborhoods. Feel free to stop by anytime. So Isaiah 61 and one beautiful passage. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. I'm thankful for that today. And to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Let me pause right here. This is the passage that Jesus is going to read from at the onset, at the outset of his ministry, when he stands in the synagogue and he reads formally in front of the people there, this is the passage he's going to read. And this is where he stops reading to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He stops reading right there. He does not continue. The Bible says he closes the book and he sets down. Uh, That's an odd place to quit reading because all the Pharisees there want him to read the next verse. They're just dying for the next verse. And the day of vengeance of our God. Now, why wouldn't Jesus read that part? Why would he stop there? Because Jesus is not the day of vengeance. He is the day of grace. Do you see? Uh, He's not the day of vengeance. It is because of his grace that we are able to escape vengeance. So that would not apply to what he's doing at this moment on the outset of his ministry. Let's continue reading. I just wanted to point that out. To comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. And notice this. To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So let me use that first uh, poetic saying there, beauty for ashes. And let me use that as a uh, a title for this uh, time we have together today. Somebody say, in Jesus' name, before you're seated, smile at your neighbor and say, you're beautiful. God bless you. You may be seated. If that made some of you men uncomfortable, I want you to know tough. Tough, tough, tough. 
this is Valentine Sunday, so you have to get in the habit of practicing your compliments, right? I didn't get any amen from the men. That's not a good sign, women. Feel free to punch at any moment. <laughs> uh, we are... We are, of course, as a society, celebrating Valentine's Day this week, and so it's only appropriate to to uh, have a little bit of fun one with another. I was I, I was hurt, hurt, I've heard a few Valentine Valentine Day jokes. I, I don't I don't have them in my notes. I probably should have, but a couple of them I remember was uh, things you should never say. At val- taking your, you know, your wife or your girlfriend or uh, whatever, hopefully. <laughs> Let's move along. Uh, <laughs> uh, you take them, you know, the, the thing you never say, you never pull out a, the, uh, a coupon and say, I'm so excited to use this two-for-one coupon today. I hope it hasn't expired. You never would do that. <laughs> Another thing you would never say is you never say, man, I used to bring my ex here all the time. <laughs> and the worst one is, I didn't say you needed to go on a diet. I said you needed to consider going on a diet. <laughs> Ooh. Death and destruction has come upon thee, come upon thee. <laughs> so... Uh, I love, I love the idea of seeing Jesus as God's act of grace, not God's act of judgment. Uh, we all deserve judgment. Yeah, I was talking to everybody. I know I'm over here on this side thinking I'm not talking to them, but I promise you, everybody that side particularly needs salvation from judgment, okay? We're kind of the righteous half over here, and it gets more and more unrighteous as we go across the church here. And so we all of us need salvation uh, and, 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 how shall we say, exception from judgment. Um, we, we do our best uh, in the flesh, but the flesh has this great limitation. Um, one of these days, I'm going to preach a message on Paul's law of temptation. Paul calls it a law. He said, I see another law that warreth within me. He calls it a law. When I would do good, evil is present, and when I would, when I would you know, uh, mean to do something for the right reason, there's this part of me that's always tempted to do it for the wrong reason. That which I would, I don't do that. But that which I don't, I shouldn't, well, I'm an expert at doing that. It's a law of temptation. And it is, it is, it is very much a part of being human, this law of temptation. Um, it's not so much an excuse as it is a reality, this law of temptation. And so we all of us, uh, we, we, we see Jesus Christ and his beautiful work, his redemptive work. We see it uh, as a day of, of grace that is given to us, a day of hope that is given to us. We seek to avoid divine judgment through the work of Jesus Christ. So it is through him that we are made holy, that are, we, are ma- we are forgiven, that we are made clean. We are made a new creation through the work of Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful for that today. 
I'm thankful for that today. I love being a gospel preacher. I, I don't say that flippantly. I don't say that just as kind of like, you know, bless God, I'm a gospel preacher. I, I love being a gospel preacher. Um, in the New Testament, that's very much something that is celebrate. We preach the gospel, not the good doctrine, but the good news. Now, doctrine's important, but that's not where we start. We start with the good news that Christ has paid our debts and made a way of escape from the day of judgment. We have through Christ hope. That is what the gospel is. Uh, just literally that, that simply, it is the good report, the good news, the, 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 the good uh, sharing. It's like uh, the Old Testament said, how beautiful are the feet of the person uh, who, who brings a report, uh, a gospel of peace. And so I love being a gospel preacher. In the Old Testament, you don't hear about the gospel. You don't hear about the good news. What you hear about in the Old Testament is preachers of righteousness. They're preachers of righteousness. And, and what are they preaching you to do? Keep the law. Keep the law. Somebody say, keep the law. If the nation keeps the law, then it is honorable. If it fails to keep the law, then it goes in a wayward direction that is met with what? Judgment. Okay, so that was given to teach us something about the reality of the human heart. The law is an, uh, it's a living lesson. It is a living instructor to us to show us that you fail to keep the law. You do your best, you strive, but you fail to keep the law. It's too much, perhaps, and we're too weak, perhaps. Who knows? And that's why sacrifice is placed alongside law in the Old Testament. Sacrifice is placed alongside law. And the result of that is after you have kept the law, you steal. After you've done your best, after you've lived right all year long, after you've strove for righteousness, you still make sacrifice as a covering for sin. This is the instruction the living teaching lesson of the law. You have done your best. It's not good enough. Thus, sacrifice, imperfect, sacrifice of flesh is made as a covering. It is not as though the priest meets you at the entrance to the temple and says, have you been good this year? I've been very, very good. Just look at me. I'm a magnificent, kind, giving, loving person. Thank you very much. And the priests say to you, well, in your case, you don't have to sacrifice this year, you've kept the law, you go over here. That's not how it works. It's not as though the priest says, oh, I've been watching, I've been watching uh, our Brother Jeff, and he's just a fine man, and uh, you know, he's, he lives with a troublesome woman, and even so, even so, this fine man, uh, he is, you know, he's going to heaven because his wife's already put him through. Um, uh, uh, I love you, darling. <laughs> You see what I'm saying? It's not as though I get to be the priest and review uh, Jeff and say, you know, Jeff, is he doesn't really need to sacrifice this year because he, he's a good man. He doesn't need to know. The lesson of sacrifice is placed together with the lesson of law. You keep the law, that's what you ought to. The reality is you fail and sacrifice must be made that you might be acceptable unto God. This is so important because it's going to help us understand the work of Jesus Christ. You see, we strive and we fail. We strive, we try, we err. Even when we're right, we're not as right as we think we are because we started thinking we were right. Thus, vanity causes us to fall. 
You see what I'm saying? But Jesus Christ, after we have done what we can do, somebody say, not much. That's how much it's worth, not much. Jesus Christ pays. He adopts, shall we say, uh, our error. And he takes it upon himself at Calvary as though it were his error. This is the gospel. Let me say it. I love being a gospel preacher. What if every time I had to preach, I'd, all I could do is tell you how you had failed? And all I could do is tell you how you ought not do this and you ought to do this. What if I always, all I could do was be a preacher of righteousness? Now, you know what that would make me? That would make me very Old Testament. I am saying, here's the law. You ought to keep it. You didn't keep it. Uh, judgment's coming. Very Old Testament. That's half the story. So let me finish the story. You should have done right. You should have lived right. You should have acted right. You didn't. Judgment coming. Stop. Wait just a second. I have good news for you. Someone has shown up who's willing to pay your judgment. Someone has shown up who's willing to take your pain. They're willing to take your suffering. I get to be a gospel preacher. That's what the Bible, and particularly Hebrews, who gets this. He gets this, this deep, deep theology of uh, the ministry, the work of Jesus Christ so profoundly. And he spends all the chapters of Hebrews writing to uh, Hebrews. Get it? Hebrews? Hebrews? Uh, writing to Hebrews who should understand this. And he's trying to get them to see that through Jesus Christ we have a better covenant. And so we see Jesus Christ truly not as the day of God's judgment. We see him as the day of God's love. We see him as a love story written large, a love story so beautiful. Oh, we Christians sometimes, um, particularly as church people, we, we, we're so comfortable with, with, with doctrine. And that's not bad. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But we're so comfortable there that we forget the beauty that's in the story. And the Lord always shows himself in the scripture through beauty. He always shows himself through beauty. It is a beautiful work. Grace is a beautiful story. There is no story in all the annals of humanity's reach for the eternal. Humanity's desires to kind of understand the supernatural. There's no more beautiful story than this. God loved his creation so much. He saw the errors and follies of it and said, I will pay the debt for it. I will adopt the sin. I will embrace the error. That is the most beautiful love story in all metaphysical musings, thoughts, ideas, imaginations of the whole human story. I am so glad to be a Jesus follower today. I celebrate Jesus. I celebrate Jesus. And he stands before the children of Israel and he reads this beautiful passage. It's, it's poetical. It's, it's gorgeous. It's, he gives us this image And he's going to show us in three statements through Isaiah. This is Isaiah writing. And he is giving us this image of what the ministry of Jesus Christ is going to be and how it's going to be effective, affected upon us. And he gives us these three images. The first one is beauty for ashes. The second one is the oil of joy for mourning. And the third one is the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Now, I want you to notice in every case, there is a categorical shift. Okay, let me, let me explain that. What do, what do I mean? Um, the opposite of beauty is not ashes. The opposite of beauty is ugliness. Like, you look at my wife, beautiful, and you look at me, ugly. You see what I'm saying? 
All right, we're, we can be dismissed now. That's all I had to say. <laughs> Valentine week. I'm trying to make up for some of those 9 a.m. jokes. <laughs> you get the idea. You get the idea. Um, the opposite of beauty is not ashes. It's ugliness. You see? Uh, but he gives us beauty for ashes. It's a categorical difference, and you're going to understand it better in the next two. The second one is the oil of joy for mourning. The opposite of mourning may be joy, but it's not the oil of joy. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, oil signifies anointing. And when you're anointed in the Word of God, you're not anointed to a moment. You are anointed to a role. Do you see what I'm saying? You're not just a moment of praise. Oh, I went to church and I really enjoyed it. It was for me. It was one of those services. It was for me. And I knew it. I just loved it. And praise God. Everybody noticed my new shoes and everyone complimented me on how, how, how good I look today. And they sang my song. Oh, I love it when they sing my song. The preacher preached my message. Oh, it's just a great day. I was anointed today. No, you are anointed in a role, not just a moment. You need to see that in the scripture because God's anointing on you is not just a moment in a special service. He anoints you to a spiritual role, a spiritual calling. You are anointed. God's not saying, I will give you a moment of joy for your morning. He's saying, I will anoint you to a ministry of joy for your morning. And so we bring to God our morning, and instead of just the opposite, we get a complete categorical change, and he anoints anoints us for a calling of joy in exchange for our mourning. You see the categorical shift? Thirdly, thirdly, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Now, I want you to see in the Old Testament, ministers are identified by the garments they wear. When you walk into the tabernacle or the temple, you will notice that the ministers there are identified by the garments they wear. The robes of the priest show the role, the calling, and the duty of that man. When you see the robe, you're not just saying he is a priest. You're saying he is something more than just a man. He represents the role of God. And so when the the, the author, uh, Isaiah, gives us this image of God. He says the garment of praise. It's not as though in exchange for your spirit of heaviness, you have a better day. It's as though Christ calls you to a ministry of better days. Are you seeing, are you starting to understand? That garment identifies you as a praiser. You are not just having a good day in the midst of a, ba- of a bad week. You're a praiser. Oh, I wish some of you guys would understand what I'm trying to say to you. You're not just overcoming a difficult time in your life. You are a praise maker. You have been ordained to be a praise maker. You have been called to be a praise maker. And God's going to take that spirit of heaviness that is in your life and he is going to exchange that for a ministry of praise. Oh, hallelujah. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. And I love this passage. And I thought it was very appropriate for today. 
a beauty for ashes, beauty for ashes. Let me, let me refer you to a story in the Old Testament most of you will have heard, uh, at least on some level, and that is, the, that is the, the great story of Esther and how she, in a time of risk, came to the salvation of the children of Israel. Esther is a very beautiful young lady. Um, she is um, <laughs> a Cinderella story. Of, of types. Um, the king of Babylon searches and looks for a beautiful young lady to join his household. And it's the manner of the times to do this. And, and our, some of our modern minds are uncomfortable with it, of course, but history doesn't care about our modern minds. It is what it is. And so uh, she's called into the house of, of uh, the king. And it's a Cinderella story, except with this crucial difference. I told the 9 a.m. service this. She never lost a shoe. Church women don't lose shoes. You don't come between a church woman and her shoes. Them shoes are very important. And she will backhand a brother in a second. You come between you and her shoes. Hmm, that's your word for the day if you'd like to take that into your spirit. Now we can move along. Esther didn't lose a shoe. No, but she's called, almost in a type of a Cinderella story, into the house of the king. She is beautiful. Somebody say drop dead. She's drop dead beautiful. She is like kingdom, whole kingdom beautiful. I mean, she's like cover of Vogue magazine beautiful. She's like bang and boom, and all the young men are excited. So um, she's beautiful. But God has placed her not because she is in any way valued at that level. He's going to use that value for something that he cares about, and that is the salvation of his people. And so I want you to see this. There is a hate, a man who leads hatred against the house of Israel, and he, through lies and subterfuge and, and the like, he twists the law to where he can literally practice a living genocide against the Jews. And he has used the law to trap them. The law, and we all should remember this as citizens, uh, the law is not right just because it's law. Law can be wrong if it represents the things that are wrong. Law is not automatically right. Uh, Nazis killed millions of people and they never broke a single law. And they said that at the Nuremberg trial. They did not break a single law of the land, okay? That didn't make it right. And the world did not let them off so easily because of that. They have made a law. They're going to enforce the law. It is to bring genocide against the house of Israel. Um, and here they are. And you can read the story in the book of Esther. Uh, Mordecai, Esther's stepfather, uh, he, he took her in as an orphan and raised her. And he has, has status among the house of Israel. And he, he understands the legal consequences of what is going on. He understands the, the trickery that is happening at, uh, uh, beneath the surface. And the Bible tells us he goes into mourning because the law has been passed, the king has been tricked and ensnared in this evil law, and so Mordecai goes into mourning, and the Bible tells us he covers himself with ashes, and he puts on sackcloth, and a house of Israel, all across the kingdom, they go into mourning with him. They are covered in sackcloth cloth and ashes because they know they have been tricked into this desperate, desperate civilizational level murder that's going
going to be practiced against them. They are in mourning. But what has God done? God has prepared a way of escape by placing Esther in the house of the king. Now remember Esther? Drop dead beautiful. And what's the children of Israel? They're facing destruction and doom. They're covered with ashes and they're wrapped in sackcloth. God is giving them beauty for ashes. You've probably never heard Esther preach this way, and I've never either, but his message went this way this morning, so we're going to roll with it. (laughs) So here you have this moment where Esther has to risk everything. And Mordecai says to her, you were not placed here by accident. It might be that God has placed you for such a time as this. Esther doesn't know what's going to happen. Uh, She knows there's a risk of her being slain in her unauthorized entry into the court of the king. And yet, it's worth the risk. None of us really can predict the future. All we can do is to decide when certain circumstances are worth the risk. And that is what Esther is doing. And she walks into the house, into the the court of the king. and And immediately, because of beauty, beauty, she is given favor. And the king asks her, uh, and basically invites her to speak. And what does she speak about? She tells the other side of the story, the other side of the trickery that has doomed her people to judgment. And the king, being the king, he understands how he himself has been tricked. And he comes to the salvation of the Jews. And the people who sought to destroy the Jews are hung on their own gaff, their own gallows. They are given the judgment that which they had prepared to give to another. This is the picture in the history of the Israel, the Israel, uh, the, the Jewish nation. I should say this is the picture of beauty for ashes. It is as though all of us have been trapped in the condition of judgment. There's nothing we can do. We don't have access to the king. Are you are you understanding what I'm saying? Job said it best. He said, you know, God is not a man that I can schedule an appointment with him. It's not like I can have my people get with his people and let's do lunch. It just doesn't work that way. I need a mediator. I need someone who will take my side and go into a court of judgment that I can't go into. I can't advocate for myself. I can't stand on my own behalf. Oh, if there was someone who could stand for me and represent my heart, not just my reality and my weakness and my loss. Oh, if there was someone. And Job, he, he, he sees someone. He tells us that great prophetic picture of Jesus Christ. I have not seen him, but he is not. <laughs> He's talking about Jesus, the mediator between God and man. In this moment, Esther is the beauty that God has given to the children of Israel who are trapped in judgment and death. And beauty goes into the court to save them from their sackcloth and ashes. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. You see, the truth is, it would be an easier thing for us to understand if the writer was just giving us opposites. If Isaiah was simply saying, God will give you beauty for your ugliness, at least we would have a kind of categorical understanding. I am in a state of non-desirability, shall we say. And you, through mercy and grace, make me more desirable. We would understand that better. But he's not saying bring 
ugliness or unattractiveness or average lookingness or ordinariness, things that which I have plenty of. Don't bring that and I'll make that beautiful. Bring me your ashes. Well, ashes are symbolic when everything has been consumed. Ashes are what is left when there's nothing else to consume. Ashes are the end of the matter. And God says, give me that. Give me the ashes. And I will make this divine exchange with you where for your ashes, where there's nothing, I will give you beauty. You see, I love the fact that Abraham and his story told to us in the book of Genesis is so full of his flaws. I love that because it makes me feel like maybe there's hope for me. Don't say amen, brother. I don't appreciate that. That's not the time to say amen. I know you meant well, but no. No, when I talk about how I need help, you're supposed to shout out, not my pastor. You're supposed to shout out, not you. You are a man above men. Thank you very much. I'm trying to educate this side of the church. This side does it good already, and this side's slipping out. Love you, dude. So, uh, Abraham is the father. He is the first principle. Somebody say first principle. He's first principle. Now, that's philosophical, but just act like you understand. That's what I do, and it it works out well. Uh, He's first principle, okay? He's the archetype of all of us who typify. We're downstream of Abraham. You see? And we know all about his junk. We know about all his errors. We know all about his mistakes. We know all his drama. We know, man. We know. He starts out pretty good. Sounds like us, right? (laughs) We can always start out pretty good. Oh, hallelujah. Great meeting we had. I'm ready to take on the devil. No, you ain't. You're just talking tough. You can't deal with your spouse, much less the devil. You fight with your spouse one time, you can barely come to church. How are you going to fight the devil? Because, honey, your spouse ain't the devil. They just act like it sometimes. You understand what I'm saying? We all start out good. I feel good. I knew that I would. Oh, I should be singing that song. Anyway, moving along. It's the journey that messes us up. It's Monday. Can I get a witness over here? It's Monday that messes us up. Sunday, we're like, ow. Monday, like, ugh. It's Tuesday that gets us. Tuesday can be tough. Tuesday's tough. Wednesday, ah, Wednesday's a pretty good day. You know, you know, you got church, and even if you don't go, you feel guilty about it. So, you know, you do better on Wednesday. Thursday, Thursday's a great day. You're still productive, but the weekend's coming. Friday, it's all over. It's all over. Friday, you can get nothing done on Friday. You're like sitting there going, eight more hours, and I'm up out of here. <laughs> you know, Friday night, ooh, Lord, save us from Friday night. Saturday night ain't nothing but trouble. 
My wife and I went out to this little place that's popular with young people um, a Saturday night. Man, they all came. They're getting ready to go uptown, you know, you know, and, 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 and have a good time. And they're all so fixed up. And, you know, I, I just look at them and I, 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 I just, I, this sounds weird. I love them. I love them. They're, they're, they're so young and earnest. And, you know, they want to they find their place and they want to be pretty and they want to have muscles and they want to have cool cars. I've been them. I, I love them. I prayed and asked God to help me love people. And Lord, did he ever help me love people? I'm like the old guy who just sits there and smiles at people. Oh, you're so cute. <laughs> and it's not just the pretty little girls. They're easy to see. They're cute. These, little, these young guys come by. They're like, <clears throat> I'm like, you darling, you're so cute. <laughs> That's adorable. <sighs> I don't remember what I'm preaching about. <laughs> Oh, Abraham makes lots of mistakes. So, Abraham, oh, thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. So, um, Abraham makes a real big mess. It's ugly. And you would think it's the kind of thing that gets you written out of the story because some things are ashamed to the story. And the reason why a lot of uh, apologetics uh, speakers and writers, uh, they bring this point out really beautiful. There's so many stories that if the Bible was making up a religion, it would have been much better to take those stories out. And the fact that those stories weren't taken out give you some sense of the authenticity of the story. It would have been so easy to take that out. Um, and so uh, Abraham has stories like that. And, and the biggest one, of course, is when he, he buys into his wife's fear. And his wife, she, in, in a way, it's easy to have sympathy for her because she wants the dream of a son for her husband. And when she thinks it can never come through her, it's as though, and this is honorable on a human level, it's as though she She's saying, look, I, I won't get to, I, you know, I want you to have your dream even if I don't get to have mine. So take my handmaiden. And this is not the will of the Lord, and it causes problems. And those problems cause the story to get ugly. The story gets really ugly because later on there's tremendous family tension. You know, I know there's no tension in your family. Your family is nothing but hugs and kisses. But in this family there was tension. And uh, shall we say sibling rivalry. None of that in your family, but it, it was in Abraham's family. And uh, so this, this story is, is this moment comes all to kind of a head when, when uh, older Ishmael makes fun of young Isaac. Well, this just will not live because you don't mess with a woman's child. If any man would like to take a note, this would be a good time to write this down. You can mess with them. You can make them angry. You can talk bad about them. You mess with their kid. They will kill you in your sleep. That's how women are made. That's how women are made. You will wake up with a knife in your throat and you'll be like, I shouldn't have called that kid ugly. I shouldn't have called that kid ugly. <laughs> Well, this kind of breaks the deal. This breaks the deal, okay? And at this moment, at this moment, uh, Sarah says, it's either them or us, choose. Now, I want to point out something very, very important here, because at least it is for me, and maybe not for a lot of preachers, but for me, it's very important to say this. Um, when Abraham casts Hagar and Ishmael out of his household, God's not the one who told him to do it. I want that to be clear. God is not the one, read it. God is not the one who told him to do it. His angry wife is the one who told him to do it, and she's mad because the older Ishmael's picking on Isaac, and that will not stand. You will wake up with a knife. You get them out of here. And so 
Abraham sends them away. God did not tell him to cast them out. His wife tells him to cast them out. And when he casts them out, he does it in an inappropriate manner where he just casts them out. The least he could have done, the right thing to do, would have been to send escort for them to a safe place, at least to her family, which was back in Egypt, Hagar's family. But he does not do that. And God stands in the gap for Abraham's failure. God provides for them, and God keeps them, and yes, God even blesses them, and God saves them from the wilderness, and this is a horrible, disappointing story of human frailty. It is something something harsh when we think about giving up on loved ones and giving up on children. I, I had a, a man in our church at one time. He's no longer a part of our church, but um, at one time he, he came to me for counsel and uh, he expressed to me that God had told him that he was supposed to cut his children off. And they were not quite adult, but they were getting close and there were problems. You know how it goes. And he, he basically said, you know, God told me uh, that I should cut them off. And I, I disagreed with him. I, I, dis- I sat in my office and di- disagreed with him, brother. I said, I don't know if you should blame the Lord for that. Your frustration may have told you you should cut them off, but I don't know that we should be blaming the Lord for that. I don't care if you agree with me or not. You can leave the church too. I don't mean to be ugly. I'm just saying it's a biblical thing. And when the Lord, in one of his hard sayings, talks about being willing to leave your family uh, later on, you will notice that his disciples understand the teaching. None of them abandon their families in the sense of relationship. They change their career, but Jesus stays at their houses. Okay? So, uh, don't don't blame God for the ugliness of your flesh. You see what I'm saying? And so you cannot, Abraham can't say, you made me do this. No, Abraham did it, and it's an ugly, ugly story. It's a sad story. You would think at this moment, the story has gotten too awkward for us to keep dealing with, with, with uh, Abraham. Uh, you, I want you to see how quick institutions will drop people, and not necessarily wrong. Uh, right now, there has been a great upswelling in our culture of, the, uh, of, of, of women uh, taking stands against sexual harassment. And I'm not in any intent getting political. I just want you to see the political power of that and how um, in, in situations where there's abuse of power, there should be justice that is given. And these things should work out. Maybe there are situations where it's too fast. Maybe the press jumps on board. I don't know. I don't have a dog in that fight. But I want you to see this. I want you to see this. The moment you're an embarrassment to an institution, they will cut you loose. The moment you bring shame on the company you work for, they will kick you to the curb. The moment you make the larger thing entity look bad, they will cut you and not miss a wink of sleep over it. You would think God would have more at stake than an institution. You would think God would have more at stake than a casino, my Lord. You would think God would have more at stake, but God is not cutting Abraham loose because the story got ugly. He is committed to Abraham, and he's going to bring Abraham through. This is what you should see when you talk about bringing ashes to God. You've made a mess. You've destroyed things, and it's your fault. You don't get to blame someone else. You don't get to hide behind some excuse. You've made a mess of things. And this is the moment. This is the reality where God has every reason in the world to give up on Abraham, to give up on us, to write us off, to step aside and let judgment work its course. But instead, 
He's not just content to do something with your ugliness. He's willing to take your ashes. And he's willing to say, all right, let's start with that right there. Musicians, you can come. Let's start right there with ashes. Let's start where there is seemingly nothing left to save. And if you'll give that to me. You see, ashes have another scriptural significance. And that is what is left when the fire has consumed the offering. All that's left is ashes. And in the Old Testament, there's this wonderful image. Um, it's some, some people see it primarily prophetically. Um, I, I, don't, I don't primarily see it prophetically. I primarily see it poetically. Um, it, 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 both are right. Both, both have their place. But I want you to see this today as an image of beauty. And that is this. A red heifer was offered as an offering and the ashes of that red heifer could be placed upon the unclean soul, the unclean person, the person marked and marred by life, the person who was a shame within their community. And that ashes of that most perfect sacrifice in the hierarchy of sacrifices in the Old Testament temple system, the most perfect, the most ideal was the red heifer, rare very rare, very perfect. That's as good as it got. But let me tell you something. Calvary is so much better a sacrifice than the ashes of a red heifer. Calvary is so much more beautiful than the ashes left on a sacrificial altar. Calvary is Christ saying, I will give you beauty for your ashes. And so on this Valentine's Day Sunday, when we're all having mildly romantic preparation, if you've been married less than five years, it's romantic preparation. If you've been married more than five years, it's mildly romantic preparation. That was funny. I don't care what you say. I know I'm in trouble. I know I'm in trouble, but that was funny. On this Valentine's Sunday. This is my good news that I get to deliver to you as a gospel preacher. God will take your ashes and give you his beauty. He will take your your mourning and he will give you the oil, the anointing of praise and worship. give you the anointing, the role. He will anoint you in the role of the joyful. He will take the garment or he'll take the spirit of heaviness and he will give you an identifying garment. I'm a praiser and I'm so thankful for what God has done in my life. I'm so thankful for what God has done. Let's all stand. As you stand, why don't you step out of the chair you're in right now and just begin to make your way down to the front. We want to take some time here to entertain the presence of the Lord. 
we have we have prepared our hearts and now we want to take a moment and we want to call upon his name in our life and as you come would you think about the tremendous work that Christ has done for you and would you think about the hope you have and you, would you refuse to believe the lies of the enemy in your life that tell you you just should quit you shouldn't quit he'll give you beauty for your ashes don't believe the lies of the accuser that tells you there's no hope he will give you beauty for your ashes. You may not feel beautiful inside. You may not feel very hopeful inside. But when God's done with you, you're going to be clothed with a beauty that is beyond beyond any understanding. It is incomparable. That's why Paul could say, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. Why can he say that? Because we're clothed with his beauty. We're clothed with his righteousness. That's how we can be like him. All across the, the house, would you lift your hands, open your hearts. As our uh, praise team begins to lead us in worship, would you just in your own way begin to speak to the Lord right now? Begin to worship him in your hearts. Let thanksgiving, let thanksgiving pour out. Oh, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. hopelessness at some level and I think it's particularly dangerous because we are testimonies of hope we are the house of hope we are we are the house of hope we preach hope yes we sing hope we shout hope we preach hope we are the house of hope and yet our individual lives can be very complicated and at times painful and when I see good people give up on church it's not usually in my opinion it's not usually because they've quit liking church or loving God it's somehow they have lost a sense of hope for themselves they have hope for other people does that make sense they have hope for other, but God will love you. But they are so disappointed in themselves, so angry, uh, whatever the context is. They're so down. They're so shamed. They're so depressed. And they buy in to hopelessness. I want to say this. Beauty for ashes is not just for people on the outside. <laughs> Beauty for ashes is for the house of faith itself. Because whether or not it represents a failing in your life, a shame in your life, a sin in your life, or whether it represents a, a, an exhaustion, an emptying, emptiness, if you give yourself to other people, you will misjudge how much you have to give. 
occasionally and you will find yourself dangerously low <laughs> and you feel like you have nothing left to give and you're like an offering. You're like an offering that has been burnt to nothing and all you have left is ashes to give the Lord. It's the end of the offering, that bitter last thing that exists after the offering has been consumed. Let me tell you, ashes is not just, beauty for ashes is not just for people outside the house. It's for all the people inside the house. So I want you never, never buy into hell's story of hopelessness. Never buy into the enemy's narrative of hopeless. There remains yet much hope. <laughs> there remains yet much promise. There remains yet much anointing. It is not over. You are not hopeless. God is on your side. He will take what is left and he will multiply it and he will make it beautiful. Do you believe that? He will make it beautiful. I said he will make it beautiful. Hallelujah. Lord, I pray for your people today. I pray for these wonderful people here today. You know how individually in their lives they are uh, attacked by, by the enemy. And you know how pain is often a very real part of our journey. And Lord, I pray your peace to all of us heavy with anxiety. I pray your comfort to all of us that's kind of weary with pain, God. I pray your renewing to those of us who have we feel like we've come to the end of our offering. Lord Jesus, I'm praying today that you would offer heaven's beauty for earth's ashes. And we will receive it today by your grace through your redemptive work. And we will honor you with our lives and glorify you every day of our life. In Jesus' name I pray. Let the church say in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you clap your hands one more time and praise to the Lord. Amen. Amen. I host a small group immediately after this service across the parking lot in the Life Center. Uh, we are on the first lesson of our First Steps uh, series of talks that I, I give to people. If you have any questions about the church, please step across the parking lot and join with me. Uh, if you have, you want to get to know any us better or any of that, I'd love to get to know you better. Across the parking lot, you'll see the sign. God bless you. We love you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come join us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road at the corner of Shamrock Drive. Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. and Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Online, find us at firstchurchclt.com or like us on Facebook or Twitter. We hope to see you soon. Come worship with us.